Mother's Day weekend. Um, but we may not all be mothers. And I wanted today's message to be for all of us. And so I actually want to talk about our mothers. Because even though um, we may not have children, we have all been children. We all have had mothers. And whether they were inspiring, infuriating, or absent, mothers have played a significant role in shaping who we are today, for better or for worse. My mother has been an extraordinary uh, figure in my life. Um, one story, I think, will show you kind of what kind of woman she is and what kind of mother she has been in my life. When I was seven years old, um, you know, I was playing with my sister. She's two years older than I am. And she made up the rules and, you know, she's older, so she got to do that. And as we were playing, I thought it was, there came a point where I felt like this was very unfair, probably because I was losing. And so I just got upset and I remember I threw something at her and she ran off to tell on me to mom. And I remember waiting in the room, seething, because I, I just thought, oh, this is so unfair and now she's going to go get mom, mommy's going to come and lecture me and I'll probably get a spanking, so... I was waiting and seething in my room. And sure enough, my mom came in with my sister looking triumphant at her side. But my mom looked sad. And she came in and she sat me down. And I, you know, braced myself for the scolding that was to come. But instead, my mom said, you know, I've tried to teach you to not to fight. But you fought again. And so I have failed as your parent to teach you. So I'm going to punish myself. And then she took the little, um, you know, stick that she used to, to spank us with. And she started spanking herself on her legs. And she hit herself hard. And I remember feeling horrified that she was getting hurt, my beloved mom, for something that I did. And before she had a chance to blink, I ran out the door. I just couldn't bear it anymore. I ran out the door, out of the house. There was this big hill, up the hill, past the firehouse, past the shops, just sobbing because my heart broke for my mom and for the fact that she was hurting because of me. After what felt like a very long time, I started walking back home, sniffling and hiccuping, my nose running. And I remember as I, you know, was just at the bottom of the hill, about to climb over it to, to our house, I saw my mom on the top of the hill looking for me. And when she saw me, she ran over and she hugged me tight, wiped away my tears, and she said, let's go home. You know, my sister and I, we have a very good relationship. And I remember that as a turning point because pretty much after that, we never fought again. There were a few, you know, squibbles here and there, but um, pretty much from the age of seven till, you know, now we've, we've become best friends. My mother taught me so much about life and love, forgiveness, and endurance. I've inherited from her a love of reading, writing, an extroverted personality, and good skin. Thanks, Mom. She taught me the importance of following godly principles as well as the importance of family vacations. She's strong, creative, loving, and I owe so much to her. But she's also human. And this is something that I often forget. <laughs> I, um, I expect my mom to be everything that she has taught me to be. And I want her to be the epitome of everything that is supposed to be good. 
And so when she's not perfect because she's human, I get so frustrated with her. You know, when she says things that I don't like, I tell her, hey, you shouldn't be saying that to me. And, you know, I, I get all judgy and, and so, so upset and, and um, irritable with her. And that's when I have to remind myself that, that she is human, that she has weaknesses, that she has personal battles just like the rest of us. And, you know, it's funny how whenever I, I see her, which these days is about once every two years, I somehow revert back to being a child. I don't know if this ever happens to you. But when I'm with my mom, I become the baby again. <laughs> um, and I act like a little kid. Um, but reluctantly this year, I'm finally realizing and accepting, now that I have babies of my own, that I am a grown-up. And that as a grown-up, one of the things I have to do is give back to her a little of what she has given to me over the years. That I give back to her the love and the empathy, the care and concern, a listening ear, the benefit of the doubt, belief in her potential, but most of all, freedom and space to be herself and not my expectations of what I want her to be. So I want to challenge us all today to let go of the expectations of what we want our mothers to be, or even the expectations that perhaps mothers place on us. And instead, trust them and ourselves to God and to allow Him to shape us into what He wants us to be. Because that's what Jesus did. For 30 years, Jesus served His family at home, helping them with the family business of carpentry, being of service to His mother and His stepbrothers. But finally, at the age of 30, He, le he leaves home and He starts His public ministry. He starts proclaiming the good news that he is there to bring about salvation and freedom to all who believe that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God that takes away their sins. And the very first miracle that he performs is actually at a wedding where his mother is one of the main organizers. We read this story in John chapter 2. It says, The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, just a little bit of background. A wedding in those days sometimes took a week to celebrate. So as you can imagine, and they, and they would invite the entire village. And so that's a lot of food and that's a lot of drinks. And to run out of wine at that time would be embarrassing to the hosts because, you know, they're supposed to be able to provide for days, but they've already run out. And perhaps Mary was one of the relatives or, um, you know, one of the close friends who was helping to, to behind the scenes. But she somehow knows the situation and she comes to Jesus for help. Now, at first, this might seem like a very strange thing for her to do because, after all, Jesus is not a winemaker. You know, what is he supposed to do about the situation? And when you first look at the passage, it, it seems like Jesus is quite rude in how he responds to her. Some translations say, uh, woman, what does that have to do with me, right? Or in, in this translation, what's, what is that, why is that our concern? But let's understand what Jesus is really saying here. First of all, the, to, the term woman in that time and culture was actually a very respectful and appropriate way to call your mother. Um, our equivalent would be saying mother or, or mom, right? And so he's not being disrespectful here by calling her woman. 
And secondly, in the original Greek, when you look at what Jesus' answer to her is, it literally says, what to me and to you. And, you know, Bible translators put it different ways, but I think a better way to, to translate this in today's terms would be, what is it to you? That is, what is your purpose in bringing this to me? What is your agenda? What are your expectations? And what is it to me? What does it mean if I do what you want me to do? What implications are there for me and my purpose, which is different from yours? What is it to you? And what is it to me? There's a difference. Because Jesus understood his mother's heart. He knew that Mary had spent 30 years of her life knowing that Jesus is the Messiah and yet not being able to prove it to anybody else. Can you imagine her neighbors and her friends and and everyone in her community wondering, did she really have a virgin birth? Wondering, who is Jesus' real father? Wondering, you know, is she a virtuous woman? And, And always having to live under that shadow of that little bit of shame, that little bit of having to prove herself, that um, the fact that m- most people wouldn't believe her and the fact that she can't exonerate her reputation. Jesus knows that Mary's idea of a Messiah is the whole nation's idea of a Messiah, somebody who's great and powerful, this earthly king who's going to restore the glory of Israel. And he knows that Mary is eager for Jesus to become that and to to prove himself as that, to meet all of her expectations in that way and to make her proud as his mother. But that could not be the purpose for Jesus. Jesus' mission in life could not be for his own glory, for his own honor, or even for the honor of his family. Since the age of 12, when Jesus walked into the temple in Jerusalem during the Passover and he saw that lamb being sacrificed on the altar, Jesus knew that that was his fate. He knew that his destiny was not the throne, but the tomb. He knew that ultimately he would get not the crown, but the cross. His agenda was so different from his mother's. And so he gently challenges her, dear mother, what is it to you? And what is it to me? My time has not yet come. That time has not yet come or my hour has not yet come is a unique phrase in the book of John that that comes up several times. And we get a glimpse of what it means here in John chapter 12, where Jesus uses that phrase again to say, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. And when the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to him. Then Jesus told them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. 
The time for judging this world has come, when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. In other words, Jesus says, the hour of my glory, the time that I am living my whole life for, is the cross, is the sacrifice, is submission and surrender and unselfishness. So that through that death, he would be able to produce a harvest of new life. So when Mary looked to him with these hopeful eyes, right, wanting him to prove himself, wanting him to make everybody wonder and amazement at him, Jesus has to say, no, that's your purpose. That's your expectations. But I'm going to show my glory through submission, not showmanship. But like many mothers, Mary doesn't give up. She believes her son can do anything. And so she goes and tells the servant, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And he does. Because he does care about her. And he does care about everyone else there. And that's what Jesus tries to actually show her. That it's not just about doing whatever she wants, but it's about fulfilling God's purpose and call for Jesus, but doing it in a way that meets the needs of others. He wants to provide something that teaches them about God. So the story goes on to say, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons, which is about 75 to 113 liters. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. And when the jars have been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign of Cana and Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples you see this first miracle it says john says was a sign you know a sign is there to help us get to something right the sign is not the destination itself it's just supposed to give us a clue about where we're heading and get us to where we want to go and so in the book of john there's actually seven signs and so when you read it um look for those signs and this is the very first sign and so jesus used this opportunity not only to to please his mother, but also to give a sign to his mother and to everyone else there that he has a different purpose in mind than what they have. That he has a calling as the Messiah that is so different from their own expectations. And what was that sign pointing to? You see, it wasn't just a coincidence that Jesus uses water from these uh, water pots that were used for ceremonial washing. And that he turns it into wine. You see, water and wine were symbols that Jesus used throughout his ministry and teachings. Water used to symbolize the washing away, but ultimately the wine as a symbol of his blood. So at the Last Supper, when Jesus uh, gives the wine and he says, drink, this is a symbol of the blood above my sacrifice for you that can take away your sins. And it's significant that Jesus tells the servants, hey, fill that up with water. And they do. And it takes a lot of work. Did you notice how big these jars were? Right? 75 to 113 liters. 
try imagine as a servant, you have to go to the well and get, you know, have our big jars uh, and buckets and then go and fill not just one, but six jars, each hundred, you know, 13 liters. That would take a long time. That's a lot of work. And so you can imagine after all that, they're wondering, well, what's the purpose of this? Because this is just water. They need wine. And what Jesus does is he, he takes that water that represents, you know, all the ceremonial washing that the Jewish people did, right? Because they believed that if they followed all the rituals and if they washed their hands and they washed their feet, then, then they're okay with God. Then they're able to do what, you know, God asked them to do. And they thought that if they worked hard enough, right, if they put enough effort in, then yes, they would get to the kingdom of God. But Jesus illustrates something through this miracle. He takes all that water that, that, that was supposed to be for ceremonial washing. He takes all that water that, that showed how much work they put into everything. And then he transforms it into wine. You see, Jesus was trying to illustrate that no amount of good works or no amount of water can wash away our sins. And he shows them, but what actually happens is our, the blood, the sacrifice, the surrender that Jesus performed on the cross, that is what satisfies. When they took that wine to the master of the ceremony and he tasted it, he said, wow, this is the best I've ever tasted. This is amazing. And notice that now there was no way it would run out because you have six jars of 113 liters each. Because when Jesus provides, he provides abundantly. And the sacrifice that he provided on the cross is more than enough to cover all of our sins. The first miracle was a sign pointing to the cross. Because on the cross, water and blood also flowed, this time from his side when the soldier pierced him. On the cross were the same characters, his mother and the disciples and the crowd of people. And on the cross... As his mother was weeping, this time her heart is broken because all those expectations that she had of him, right, for 33 and a half years of becoming the king, of, of bringing glory and honor to her family and to the nation of Israel have been dashed to the ground. And, he has to, and she has to watch her son suffering on the cross, which would have been so difficult as the mother. Jesus uses every ounce of strength and breath he has left to say to her, dear woman, here is your son, nodding towards John, his closest disciple. And he says to John, here is your mother. And the Bible says that from that moment onwards, John took Mary into his home and took care of her. So to the end, he was a good son, taking care of his mother and being faithful to her. But to the end, he was also faithful in following God first, in following his heavenly father's will over the will of his own mom. He had to do his father's business, even if that meant breaking her heart. But he knew that through that process, that was the only way that he could save his mother and his brothers and everyone else in humanity because it was only through that sacrifice that he could give them life. It was only through the cross that he could give to his mother what she had given to him that new life and this one for eternity and you know when jesus resurrected he got to see her again no longer as his son but as the risen savior 
And Mary submits to his authority and surrenders her heart to him as her savior, no longer seeking her own agenda, but now following him as his disciple. And the roles reverse. She was there in the upper room 50 days later at Pentecost when they were all in prayer. I don't know if you've ever noticed that in the book of Acts. When it mentions the you know 120 people gathered in the upper room, it says that Mary, Jesus' mother, was one of them. So can you imagine her praying in that room, knowing that she had to let go of her claim on Jesus as her son and to accept him and worship him as her savior? It took breaking of her heart and the breaking of all the expectations and all the false ideas that she had, but the building up of new expectations, of new hopes, knowing that she would one day be reunited with Jesus. This time, in his full glory and splendor as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But until then, every follower of Christ is called to follow the path of Jesus to glory, which is the path of surrender and sacrifice and unselfish love. And that's what I think mothers are called to do, right? It's, you know, Roy and I, we sometimes talk about, oh, do you want another child? And Honestly, we really don't want one <laughs> because it's so much work. And, you know, I think to myself, oh, do I really want to get pregnant again? And um, for those of you who haven't been around when I was pregnant with the two boys, it was awful. <laughs> I had hyperemesis gravidarium with both boys. And so I had to get IV, um, you know, fluids into my body because I couldn't keep water down uh, for pretty much most of the nine months each time. And so I think to myself, do I really want to go through all that and all the, all the painful agony of, of um, and I love my food, so it's, it's, it's a terrible time. And then, of course, you think, okay, well, now the baby's out, it's over, right? No, because you then have to breastfeed the baby, which is painful and difficult and long hours all night. And, you know, of course, during the day, it's not like you get to sleep either. I thought to myself, do I really want to go through that all over again? And then, of course, once they got out of the baby phase, then it's the... The wonderful, terrible twos um, where they're testing the boundaries and, and learning to say no and throwing tantrums. Um, and just when you think that's over, then it's the threes and fours and you know, it just never ends. And so I ask myself, why do I really want to do that again? You know, I, we're finally at the place where Micah and Joshua are really happy and we can communicate with them and there's a, there's a routine and things are going well. And I realize that, that, that being being a parent, um, and, and especially being called to be a mom, it's a call to sacrifice. It's a call to unselfishness. It's a call to love. And the only way we can do it truly um, is when we get the help from Jesus who has been there before us. And, you know, if you think about who Jesus is to us, Perhaps our own mothers have, have, um, have not been around. Perhaps our own mothers didn't really know how to sacrifice and love well. But the important thing that we have to remember that is that Jesus is ultimately our life giver. He's the one who created us, but also gave us new birth through his labor of agony on the cross. He endured the physical and the spiritual and the emotional and mental hardship and discipline needed to give us that chance to live forever. There's several references to the Bible um, to God as our kind of motherly figure um, where he calls Jerusalem his people, his child. Here's just a few examples. 
In Isaiah chapter 49, verses 13 to 16, Sing for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on them in their suffering. Yet Jerusalem says, The Lord has deserted us. The Lord has forgotten us. Never. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she has born? But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. See, I have written your name on the palms of my hands. Always in my mind is a picture of Jerusalem's walls and ruins. And another one in Matthew where Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. See, the Bible says over and over again that even if our own mothers forgot us, right? Even if our own mothers couldn't love us, that God loves us intimately and everlastingly. That he has written our names on the palm of his hand. That even if the love of our own mothers has dried up and run out like that wine did at the marriage feast, that his love is so abundant for us that he can give us that love that is saved and that is the best for last. And when that great marriage feast happens in heaven, when we are finally reunited with Christ, Jesus says that that's when he will drink that new wine again. In in fact, he says he's going to save it till then. In Matthew, when Jesus is at the Last Supper, he says, He took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it. For this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. You see, At that great wedding event, it's not going to be just the servants who know where the wine came from. This time, the entire world will know that Jesus has the power to transform. That Jesus has the the incredible ability to create life and to change something that was just worthless works and and give us this new life that is entirely through faith in Jesus' sacrifice. And that he can take our human, false, wrong, selfish expectations and change our hearts so that we now live to please God and God alone. You know, when I was seven, waiting in that room for that discipline that was due me after my fight with my sister, I wasn't sitting there repentant and contrite. I wasn't feeling sorry. I was feeling angry with my sister for being a tattletale and a know-it-all. I was quite bitter that I was going to be scolded, right? I just felt like it was just such an unfair moment, and I was just seething in that room. But when my mom shattered my expectations of what was going to happen by punishing herself instead of me, she taught me something. She taught me at that young age what grace is, not just forgiveness, but taking what I deserved, what reconciliation is. Not just repentance, but the coming home. And what family is. Not just individuals who are related to each other, but people who are connected by love, which is the only motivation that can transform us. And for that lesson, I will always be grateful. So even though I still argue with her a lot, 
and we have such different opinions of how things should be. I'm praying now that I can let go of my expectations of what I want her to be and my kind of wishing that I can change her into who I think she should be. Um, and at the same time that I can empower her to be who Jesus wants her to be. And I pray that I can be my mother's daughter, not in the ways that she wants me to be, or even in the ways that we both fall short, but in the way that God has called me to be. And I pray that I can be a good mother to my children, raising them to put God first so that they can become who God has called them to be. And I pray that this Mother's Day, we can first thank God for our mothers, because no matter what they have given us all life, we're here today because of them. But also that we can thank God that we have Jesus, who loves us so much more than our mothers ever could, and who gives us new life and new purpose in him. And that we can take a moment this Mother's Day to think about how we can live for God better. And that as we fulfill God's expectations of us, that we would be able to then bring true honor and glory to those who have given us life. Thank you. Um, we're just going to have a quick word of prayer. Um, I don't, and um, and then we'll, we'll have some announcements for you. Dear Father, we just want to thank you that you have given us new life, that we're able to... Um, experience a new purpose, Lord, not just living for the expectations that our parents have placed upon us or even our own expectations, Father, of what we want to be, but living for who you want us to be, who you have called us to be. And I pray that on this Mother's Day weekend, we would really be able to appreciate our parents um, for who they are and to love them for all that they have given to us and to thank them. But at the same time, Father, to remember that you are ultimately the life giver, and that, Father, um, at this time, perhaps for some of us, Mother's Day is a reminder of difficult times. But Father, I pray that we be comforted in knowing that um, you are the ultimate uh, life sustainer. And that, Father, through you, we can live out our lives in full, abundant um, capacity. Because you have given us so much and that you believe in us. And you've called us to be your children. And so we're grateful for that. We pray that you would bless all of us to help us to live faithfully for you and to help us to live a life of surrender and sacrifice and unselfishness the way that Jesus did. We pray in your son's name. Amen.